Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Good morning, church. I said good morning, everybody. Good morning. That's wonderful. I just want to greet everybody in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad that we are able to join together. It's such a joy, trust me, from where I am standing to see some people right in front of you. We have been preaching to Vacant Chelsea. I know that everyone is watching online, but I'm so delighted that we are able to join together. And I just want to welcome everyone. I know that we are on a tour, Tour de Colossians. That's why I love to call this. And I hope you are enjoying the journey so far. We have been having a great time together. And uh, today we are on the eighth day of the tour. I don't know if you know that or not. Eighth day. So today we'll be working through five verses. And you heard the passage being read today. And I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. And you can look at the first five verses. But let me give you an overview of what's happening here, just for the benefit of those who may be joining us for the first time. Now, we are having a, there's a little church in, in Colossae. It was uh, apparently being formed or, or, or started by a servant by the name of Epaphras. And there was a problem with this church. The problem that they encountered was that there were heretical teaching that were coming into the church. So Epaphras noticed it, he, had a, he was concerned about that. He goes to Paul, who is in a house arrest in Rome, and he was seeking his counsel, and Paul is sending a letter back to this church and through a servant called Tychicus. And in this letter that we are looking at today, Paul is actually telling the church in Colossae, encouraging them and helping them in it, so they're equipping them so they can encounter this threat and they can be victorious. So that's what you're seeing here on a big picture level. So what we have, what we have seen so far, as we look at this, the, the main attack is on the supremacy of Christ in the, in the Colossians church. So naturally, Paul's defense is about the supremacy and, and sufficiency of Christ. That's what they're saying. So Paul started in chapter 1, he started greeting them and thanking the Lord for their hope, for the faith, and, the, and, and, and for the love that they have for each other. Then he started telling them how he desires them to grow in the Lord, talking about some growth markers Paul was mentioning. Then he talks about the the, the supremacy of the person of Jesus Christ, and he was saying how he is supreme in the natural creation, which is the universe, and how he is supreme in his spiritual creation, which is the church. Then he goes on to talk, to talk about the redemptive or salvific work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and ta- telling them who they were and who they are and who they should be. And last week, we look at, not last week, the Sunday before last, we looked at the last six verses or five verses in in Colossians chapter 1, where Paul talks about servitude. How do you serve? And when he's talking about that, he was actually talking about himself and how he suffered for the sake of other Christians, how he shared God's word, how he served as a missionary, and how he proclaimed Christ with all his energy. 
So Paul sees this suffering as a service done for the sake of Christ. And today we are going into chapter 2. So in chapter 2, again, if I want to give you a quick overview, looking at it from a 40,000 feet above, Paul is actually warned, he warns this church of the spiritual deception lying ahead. And I wanted to look at this verse number 4 that's appearing on the screen right now. He says, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Now, I want you guys to know I'm working from the NKJV. That's what I'm so familiar with. So I know those of you look at ESV and NIV is maybe slightly different, but the content is the same. So what you're seeing here, so from this passage that we're going to look at today, we could draw some timeless principles that would teach us how we could combat spiritual deception. Because church, believe it or not, we are living in that world of spiritual deception. So today we are going to look at that, how do we combat this spiritual deception? I know that every one of us, no, none exempted, we have been fooled or tricked by telephone scammers. Yes or no? We get calls saying that it's a call from CRA. And the moment you hear a call from CRA, you freak out. Because even if you have paid all your taxes, you are so worried and upset about it, and you really want to hear, and you want to believe what they're saying is true, but it's not true. Soon you realize they were, they, they were fooling you, and there they, they are people who have been paid to do this job. Or somebody else will call from Microsoft. You say, there's a problem with your computer. They're going to fix it. Give us your passwords. And you know what? The interesting thing is, church, I personally know of some people from this church. We might think we are all smart. Who, who fell, fell into this trap? And they made a confession to me. What's the point of making a confession to me? The money is gone. But you may may not be a victim, but I want, because you have experienced it, now when a call comes, you handle it differently, isn't it? Because you experience it, you know what the threat is. Now, while these schemes that I'm talking about can cost people financially, spiritual deception can result in a person's eternal ruin. This is only financial. We might lose a house, maybe a car, maybe some money. But a spiritual deception, if you fall victim to that, it can it can result in a person's eternal ruin. Satan has been employing his deceptive lies since the garden. You know how he came to Eve and he said, did God really say? Just a seed of doubt. That's what Satan did. Now Paul warns to the church in Corinth, and it is so true to Every gospel-centered church, and it's too true for us too, I want you to see this. Paul is writing, he says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Church, why do we think that we are exempted from this? Paul is writing to a, a great church church in Corinth. So every one of us can be. Satan has used the false teaching of the, of the cults to entice many 
away from the true gospel the apostles preached. They, these teachers prey on unsuspecting, untaught people in evangelical churches. Yes, it's true. In churches. Paul gets in. Sorry, the devil gets in. And to unsuspecting and untaught people, they become victims. They use the Bible and then they, they claim to believe in Jesus as the Savior and the Lord. They will make that proclamation. The moment you make that proclamation, you are trapped to it. Because you see one truth and you believe the whole thing, what they're going to say is the truth. But they deny the Trinity, including Jesus' as deity, and they deny the gospel of Christ, substitutionary atonement, and salvation by grace through faith alone. Tragically, they lead their followers into eternal damnation. Now we see here, church, that a false teachers were threatening this new Colossian church. Based on my research, it's about five years old that church was, roughly about. But we do know one thing, which is very comforting as you read this passage. In verse number five, we realize that in this church, probably Satan did not have a chance to sway any of these people. Look at verse number five. Paul was saying this, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing, Paul says, I am rejoicing to see your good order or discipline and the steadfastness of stability or of your faith in Christ. So what we learn from this is that the church, even though they are being attacked, they have not become victims yet, which is good news. Not become victims yet. But, the, but these wolves were mingling among the flock. So Paul was really concerned. So Paul is giving them a dose of preventative medicine. That's what Paul is doing here in this passage. So what is Paul trying to do? This is the key text which I read earlier. And I've given it in two versions, NIV and NKJV. I want us to read this very carefully. See, he, he writing these things so that no one would delude. That's what ESV says. Here he says that now this I say, meaning that this is the reason I am telling this to you, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. NIV, he says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Church, you have to understand the fine print, which is fine-sounding arguments arguments, believable arguments, which can sway you. So to be forewarned was to be forearmed, because since the eternal destiny of the precious souls is at stake, we at seekers must give heed to Paul's counsel on how to combat spiritual deception. So let's dive in to see how to pursue the theme of combating spiritual deception. Let me make a statement. The first lesson we learn from this passage, there are two lessons we are learning. The first lesson is to combat the spiritual deception. We must recognize that it is a serious danger or a serious problem. 
That's the first thing. If you deny that, if you don't understand that, you are not going to find a preventive medicine. You have a stomachache, you have a heartache, you have a headache. If you are not serious about it, if you don't admit it, and considering that as a serious issue, you are not going to seek medical help. You need to first recognize that this is a serious danger. Because Paul says in verse number one, for I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So what Paul wants them to know, that he is actively concerned about them, not just them alone, but for the entire other Christian communities of the Lycus Valley, including the church in Laodicea. And we looked at that on day one as we were talking about this. And the similar perils threatening them all, it applies to us today. When we know that the trail you are trotting is dangerous, you'll keep your eyes open and your mind alert. You will intentionally look out for predators and uncharted boundaries. You'll be careful. I remember a thing that my son told me, it happened. He took my grandson on a trail in Dundas. And before he could notice, my little John was just about to fall off a cliff. And this would be a great lesson that my son will never ever forget. I'm sure he, now he'll be always looking for danger next time he goes on a trail because he knows the danger. So we should recognize that these spiritual predators are a serious danger for us. We cannot belittle their impact. The problem with spiritual deception, church, it's always more subtle and conniving. It's not armed or frontal attack that you can see the enemy. Paul warns that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and his servants as angels of righteousness. We find his two Corinthians. Satan doesn't come in a red suit with some horns on and, and coming and telling you, guys, I'm going to take you to the hell. He does not do that. And we all know that. He comes offering greater light on difficult issues. His servants are not outwardly, obviously evil. They are not. That's why Peter says in 2 Peter, he says, they pose as servants of righteousness, promising freedom, while inwardly, they are enslaved by various lusts. That's the job of Satan. Jesus warns us about these, 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 these acts of the devil. He says they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They disguise, their disguise enables them to mix among the flock. But their aim was to destroy for their own gain. And that's why we see in verse number 4, Paul warns about this. We looked at this passage earlier. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. They were promising deeper knowledge of mysteries. These deceptive uh, leaders. And their 
they are promising secret wisdom that would help you in your Christian life. They were promoting a message that appealed to the flesh. They claimed to have a deeper philosophy than the simple gospel of faith in Christ. They claimed to be holier than the apostles because of their self-abasement or rules and severe treatment of the body. Look at verse 23. This is what Paul says. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. Appearance of wisdom. This is so scary, church. The appearance of evil, appearance of wisdom. If there is, there is an appearance of wisdom which can easily trick us into believing that is the truth. And Paul goes on to say it's a self-imposed religion, false humility and so on and so forth. But they were promoting a religion that feeds pride, not the message of the cross. It's amazing how many different false teachings and teachers continue to prey on the Lord's flock in our day. I know cults as, as active as ever, they go from door to door and you know that you have experienced them. Some of us have opened the doors to, and allowed them to come into the house. To hear what they have, is they are very convicting the way they, were talk, they are talking to you. We see many, many imposters, you know, appealing to the saints to attend magical healing services. Oh, this healer has come from Timbuktu. Come here and receive your healing. As if that person is going to heal you. Oh, we say there's a miraculous relief of your, from your financial burden. Send me $10, you'll get $1 million. We are naturally drawn to it because we are looking for a solution to our problem, whether it is health or whether it is finances. And the devil knows how to attack you. And sadly, seeker-sensitive churches avoid mentioning anything negative such as sin and judgment which might make seekers feel uncomfortable. Rather than they explain and apply the Bible, they show video clips and they, go, they give you self-help and the 12 steps of coming out of alcohol and 12 steps of coming through this, that and the other instead of bringing people to the Word. They picture God as a good buddy. He's a great friend. He's a coach who will help you out. If you are ignorant to these things, church, we are more likely to fall prey to them. So if you don't know the danger of this, you will be trapped for sure. That's the first lesson that we are learning here in order to combat spiritual deception. The first step is to recognize that it is a serious danger, serious problem. Secondly, let us read verse number two. And if you recall, I just want you to understand this. In chapter one, Paul was talking about the supremacy of Christ above all creation, that's the universe, above his spiritual creation, that's the church. He said that riches in Colossians 1.27, we looked at two Sundays ago, the riches of the glory of the mystery that that. God has now revealed this Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what I take from verses 1 to 5, let me make the statement, I'll explain that to you, is that 
the church you belong to must be a Christocentric church to combat spiritual deception. Let me repeat that. The church that you belong to must be a Christ-centered or Christocentric church to combat spiritual deception. And what Paul is doing in these five verses, he expands on the characteristics of a Christ-centered or Christocentric church. So what I want us to do as we go through this, to ask ourselves the questions, put a mirror in front of us and say, do we fit into this? That's my exhortation to you today. Let's dive in as we go through that. So now in this text, Paul spells out what would be a Christocentric church. And in verse number two, which I'll bring up on the screen now, Paul expresses here, starts in verse number one, he expresses desire or prayer for, their, for these dear saints in Colossae, along with the believers in Laodicea. And he says this in verse number two, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding and to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. It's a heavily loaded statement. There are so many gold nuggets that we can pick from this, and we're going to see what we can do today. Let us take one at a time. Being knit together in love. Not this church, what you see is Paul's heartfelt love and concern for these believers whom he had never even met. I want you to get it. Paul has never met these believers. They don't know the face of these believers. Paul made similar appeal in his epistle to the saints in Ephesus. We don't need to turn to that, but in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul writes, and that you being rooted and grounded in love, let me repeat that, you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. How does it start? You being rooted and grounded in love. Paul is saying that a Christocentric church will be a loving church. That's what he's talking about. That's the first thing that we are seeing here. In both prayers, in Colossians and Ephesians, Paul connects God's blessings of Christ with being a part of a loving fellowship of believers. Some of you know a theologian by the name of F.F. Bruce. He observed, he says, Paul emphasizes that the revelation of God cannot be properly known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love within the community. I love that statement. Paul emphasizes that the revelation of God cannot be properly known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love within the community. So one key characteristics of a Christocentric church is that it will be a loving church. You may say, Pastor, it's easy to say it's a loving church. What does it really mean? What does it mean to be a loving church? What does it look like? In the text that we are looking at today, there are two qualities of a loving church that we can see. Number one, we can see that in verse number one, 
I'm sorry, I clicked too fast. A loving church is a praying church. In verse number one, we see that, and you, you, you saw that earlier, I want you to know, Paul is saying this, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you. ESV says, I, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. The word conflict or struggle actually comes from the Greek word argon, from which we get the English word agony. So I was doing my research and I found that the NLT translation, it says, instead of saying, for I want you to know what a great conflict, it says, I have agonized for you. That's the word that has been used. I have agonized for you. So Paul's great struggle for these believers, whom he has not met, was his struggle in prayer. His struggle in prayer. And we had to read this, the entire book. I said I always told you on day one, you should read all four chapters to get the message. In, when you come to chapter 4, we see that Paul is specifically called, is called to this church to prayer. He's, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well. And talking about Epaphras, again in chapter 4, he says, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. The same term Argon or agony is used in this context. So basically what we, are, what we are seeing is that if you are a loving church, you'll be a church who will be praying for each other. If you love people, you will pray for them. I say, Pastor, I didn't want to hear that. I cannot pray for so and so. Paul did it for the saints. He encourages us. If, you are, if they are on your heart, you take them often before, the God, before God's throne of grace. You ask God to keep them for the many snares of this world and to help them grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That should be your prayer. So I'm going to encourage every one of you here to take the church's directory. And I'm most willing to share it with you as long as you don't do telemarketing. And I, I would encourage you to pray for everybody, even if you don't know them personally. Church, the example that we are finding here is Paul does not know a Tom, Dick, and Harry in the church in Colossae. He had not seen their faces. Even if you don't know the other person, we have been called to pray. Prayers will put them in your heart. Let's say I start to pray for, pray for so-and-so from this church, that, that prayer alone will put that person in my heart. Next time when I see that person, yeah, I prayed for you. I prayed for you. When you meet them, there is an instant bond of fellowship if you are praying for that person. But also, you have to understand, the term that is used here is agony. It, it simply implies that praying is not easy. Well, I don't want to pray for Keith because, you know, he is a bad boy. And he is. He is a bad boy. And, and, and you know, I, I, I don't like him. He did this to me. How can I pray for him? But what do you pray for? Even those who are hurting you in the church, what do you pray for? The Lord Jesus, a great example, church, he was on the cross. What did he say? Father, 
Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's an expression of love. It is an, I'm not saying, Father, convict them or, or bring about a condemnation. That's not what Jesus said. Father, forgive them. So, as Paul says, we are to agonize in prayer for this is a struggle. Why? Because the battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So we see that Paul says that with love we are knitted together. In the same second verse number two, he says being knit together in love. What does that mean? We know what love means, you have to pray. What does knit together in love means? There are core biblical truths. Understand this church that we must understand and clearly be willing to fight for. We are united in them. There are other areas of doctrine and practice where godly people can differ. We can differ. These, are, these areas do not jeopardize the truth of the gospel. We may debate these issues vigorously, but we must always regard that the other person as a brother or a sister in Christ and treat him or her with love. We are united by the truth of the gospel. When that happens, the enemy cannot shake the foundation on which we stand. When we are knit together, because the whole theme is about how to combat the work of the enemy. When we are knit together on the foundation of the truth of the gospel, the enemy cannot attack us. Let's say if I'm divided over, am I a Calvinist or half Calvinist or quarter Calvinist? Or am I an, you know, if I'm going to debate about those kind of issues, we can take a position on that. Enemy can easily enter in. When we negotiate the truth of the gospel, that's it. We are opening the doors for the enemy to walk in. So my question to you is, who are you praying for at SEF? Write down a few names, please. Start doing it today. Agonize in prayer for them, for their spiritual growth. This is the demonstration of love. There should be no one that you are uncomfortable praying for. Then there's a problem with you, not with the other person. Because we are knitted together on the truth of the gospel. This is how a Christocentric church would, would be displayed. This is how you combat the spiritual deception. So that is my, my point. Hmm. I'm sorry, just bear with me. So our church has got to be a loving church, praying for each other and be united in love. Let's move on. Verse number two. Paul's heart of concern for these new believers, it simply oozes through the text. Now, verse number two again. We're going to go back to verse number two. He says that their hearts to be encouraged or strengthened. That's another characteristic that we see here. So the second characteristic that we see for a Christocentric church is that it practices a heartfelt concern for one another. 
when you are being knitted together in love, you'll be concerned for the others. Genuine love means that if you see a brother or sister in sin or staying away from the Lord, you go to them in humble adoration, in gentle spirit, and you want to seek to restore them. You encourage them in the path of righteousness. Every member would feel safe and secure to be vulnerable with you. Why? Because you are knitted together in love. And I, I should be able to say I can openly talk about my struggle with you without being judged. That's what Paul is saying here. In a church setting, we should be able to talk to everyone about my own struggle. Knowing very well that's not going to be held against me and used against me. A heartfelt concern would encourage them to come out of their struggles. You do not seek worldly resources or for comfort and strength because you have it within the four walls of the church. I can find that comfort here within the church. Therefore, you don't allow the enemy a foothold in our fellow brother's life. There is no room for the enemy to enter in. So the second characteristics that we find here is that we should be a caring church. Everyone should be able to talk to you openly and frankly about things, knowing it's, going, it's not going to be a gossip. Thirdly, we find the characteristics. Again, going back to verse number two, look at this. Paul says, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God. So the third point is that a Christocentric church, that it seeks the spiritual growth of each other. Paul, that's what Paul wants. Attaining all, to all riches of the full assurance of understanding. We want everyone to grow spiritually. That should be our concern. When there is love and concern that would seek the highest good for others, which is that the person knows Christ in a saving way and they are growing in Christ. If you hear a fellow Christian saying things that are contrary to sound doctrine, if you notice a fellow brother or sister being swayed by the winds of false teaching, you will walk with them. You will walk with her. And you will try to reason from Scripture to show his or her error. You will point them to Christ. You will want them to grow spiritually. There is safety when you are in the fold with the other sheep. Because church, if you venture out on your own, the wolves are waiting outside. So the question is, how is the spiritual growth possible within the church? Let's continue to read the same passage here. But I, this time I brought you two, two um, translations. This is the NKJV, where it talks about to the knowledge of the mystery of God, and the NLT says this, I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which Christ himself so let me stop and ask you a question. Where do you get this understanding? Yeah, I'm keen to see that everybody's growing spiritually, but where do you get this understanding? How do you grow spiritually? They should comprehend the understanding of the mystery of God. That's what Paul says here. For that the church must be Bible-centered church. It must be based on the scriptures and scriptures alone. 
Why? Because the Bible is the only source of divine revelation about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else. You want to understand the mystery of God, which is, which is Jesus himself. The only way to know that is to go to the scriptures. So the church itself must be a Bible-centered church. The Old Testament points ahead to Jesus. We know that. Without the Old Testament, we could not know Jesus properly. Without the Old Testament, we would not understand the New Testament properly. The mystery Paul means, by, by mystery, Paul means here that the truth that was formerly concealed, but now plainly revealed for all to use. The Old Testament promised the coming of the Redeemer and the King. But the specifics were blurry. If we don't have the scriptures, if we don't know the New Testament, the specifics were blurry until Jesus came to the scene. It's just like church. We are fussy on the details of the end times of the prophecies, isn't it? Nobody can say this is exactly what's going to happen. Until it happens, we won't know for sure, but Jesus has come already. So one theologian put it this way, the only safeguard against error for the Christian is a full knowledge of Christ. The only safeguard against error for the Christian is to have a full knowledge of Christ. It is the gospel that tells of how God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. The New Testament gives you the details about his life as a person and his teachings and the work of Christ. And the book of Revelation points the second coming in power and glory. So if a church is not centered on the Bible, it is not centered on Jesus Christ. So if a church does not teach the Bible on a consistent basis, you will not be equipped to withstand the deceptive schemes of the devil. So in a genuinely loving church, you will receive sound teaching, both from the pulpit and from mature believers. Sometimes, church, I want you to know that sound teaching will confront where your life is. You may not like it. Wherever you, the areas of your life that is not in line with God's revealed will, please don't dodge that when you have been confronted. Church, it is easy to find churches that tell you what you want to hear to make you feel good. But you need a church that like a real true doctor tells you not what you want to hear but what you need to hear for spiritual health and growth. That will help you combat the spiritual deception. So that is the next point that we are learning here. Be a spiritually growing church, a Bible-centered church. Fourthly, we are looking at verse number three. Paul says this. Let me make the statement and I'll explain to you. To be a Christocentric church, it must be a spiritually discerning church. Not only a growing church, but discerning church. Verse three. In whom are hidden all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. What is wisdom? Wisdom is looking at things from God's perspective. That's what wisdom is. In your life, you need wisdom, you need to see from God's perspective. That's what wisdom means. So discernment is a scarce 
commodity in modern evangelical churches. Because if you advocate discernment, you'll be accused of being judgmental and intolerant. There are some secondary matters where we must not be dogmatic. We spoke about that earlier. You must be kind and gracious when to defend the truth. But I totally disagree, church, that we must be tolerant and accepting diverse views on clear doctrinal uh, principles that we learn in the Bibles or even moral issues. Because without sound doctrine, biblically based discernment, Paul warns that the church in Ephesus, this is what he says, you'll be carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness of deceitful schemes. If you don't have proper doctrine, you'll be swayed. So the correction of spiritual discernment must be done with love and care only. When you correct somebody, the person must not change because of compulsion, but the person must change because of conviction. And the conviction can only take place when the Word does the work. So you heard the saying always, the surgery is successful, the patient is dead, isn't it? What good is it? What good is that? The patient is dead. Spiritual discernment applied by the elders, pastors, and mentors must be received as a loving correction. But those who are correcting, you have a responsibility. I always tell you, church, when you are going and confronting somebody with the spiritual discernment that you have, always remember you are punching them on their chest. That's what you're doing. No matter how mature the person is, it's important the person feels that when you punch, the person is not going to fall because you're, while you're punching with your right hand, your left arm is around the person. I'm not going to let you fall. I'm with you. I know you have made a mistake, but I'm with you. I'm going to walk with you. When you have a church like that, we, cannot, we can easily avoid a spiritual deception, not allowing the devil to come in. So the, so the fourth one is spiritually discerning church. And finally, we're going to the last one, verse number five. Paul says this, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit. And then he goes on to say something. Rejoicing to see your good order and steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So the fifth characteristics and the last characteristics of a Christocentric church is that it is disciplined and stable in its faith in Christ. Paul uses the term good order. Another translation is discipline. He uses the term steadfastness of faith. In another translation, stability of faith. So it pictures a military unit that is disciplined in its fighting order that has close ranks and, and false teachers cannot break in. It's a fortified city that we are living in. Disciplined and we are stable. The good order points to well-ordered behavior of the Colossians. Enemy cannot penetrate in a well-disciplined army battalion. What Paul says is that lives that are aligned with biblical revelation and daily habits of life that, is reflect, that reflects the values of Jesus, unwavering obedience to the will of God, no matter how unpopular or unsuccessful that may prove to be, that 
church is a stable church. Stability in this word is actually opposed to, opposite of trendy and flashy and sensational. You know, stable churches don't chase after the latest fad or church growth techniques. Let me repeat that for all the young leaders. Stable churches don't run after the latest fad or church growth techniques. Just because you see a church doing that, you don't need to copy that. They don't need, we don't have to, we don't need to keep people hyped up with speculations about the second coming is coming tomorrow, are you ready? And we don't need to scream and shout from the pulpit because nobody is deaf. Everybody can hear. Speak the word and the word will do its work. We don't have to drive people emotionally. We need to drive people spiritually. So stable churches, frankly, are kind of boring. They are not very popular. But they are stable in their faith in Christ. That faith is the God against spiritual deception. What does Paul say in, in, in Ephesians chapter 6? Faith is the shield. It's the shield of faith. It's one of the armor of God. He says, carry on the shield of faith. What will the shield of faith do? It will extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. That's what you are seeing in this church. So the question is, church, is our faith stable in Christ? Do we have a faith in Christ? Is that faith stable? Are we in good order? Is our behavior is in line with the gospel? If so, then the enemy cannot penetrate. So as we looked at this passage, I'm bringing it to a close now. We are looking at the combating spiritual deception. The first thing we need to know is that we must be aware of the imminent danger. Unavoidable danger is coming up. Secondly, two principles that we take from this. We must belong to a Christocentric church. And how do you know a church is Christocentric? Number one, it will be a loving church. A loving simply means it will pray for each other. Not to say, I love you, you love me, we are a happy family. I'm not talking about that kind of love. We'll be praying for each other. We'll be united in love. And then we are a caring church. We are not going to condemn people. We are going to build them up. We are going to be a spiritually growing church, a Bible-centered church. We'll be spiritually discerning church. And lastly, we'll be disciplined and stable in faith. And here's how I want to close church. I want to be very vulnerable here. And I want to put all the elders and the, and the board very vulnerable here in front of you. This is what John MacArthur says. Church leaders are obsessed with style and methodology, losing interest in the glory of God and becoming grossly indifferent about truth and sound doctrine. You know, only MacArthur can say that. And then he goes on to say this. What we desperately need today are shepherds according to God's heart who will feed the believers with knowledge and understanding. 
That is what Paul was arguing for in our text today. Church, you can combat spiritual deception by being committed to a loving, Christocentric church. Here's the question. Listen carefully, everybody here and those on, online. Is SCF a loving, Christocentric church? That's why I said I want to be vulnerable here. I would like you to write to me or write to the elders. Because if you see any areas that we need to change, I'll be the first one to change. Because sometimes we don't know what mistakes that you are making. I want to be sure that as a pastor, as the leader of this church, that I'm able to fortify this church and build a church that is Christocentric. If anyone, I give you the, I give you the authority to reach out to me or to one of the elders or one of the board members if you see an area where we need to change. So let us be a church that can combat the spiritual deception by being a church that is aware of the danger, by being a church that is Christocentric. God bless you. God be with you.